Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you visit the website, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date. By reading Life in Naples, the website is lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests. By the way, sorry if you're listening live. I had a little problem with the equipment, as you know, but figured it out. Anyhow, uh, we've got great guests for today's show, including Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. We'll visit with Larry Reed. Larry is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. And Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston at Space Architecture, will be joining us as well. It is June the 21st. It is the summer solstice, and on, it's the longest day of the year, by the way. In, in terms of sunlight. And on this day in 1788, New Hampshire became the ninth and last necessary state to ratify the Constitution of the United States, thereby making the document the law of the land. By 1780, defects in the uh, post-Revolutionary War Articles of Confederation were apparent, such as the lack of central authority over foreign and domestic commerce. Congress endorsed a plan to draft a new Constitution, and on May the 25th, 1787, the Constitutional Convention convened at Independence Hall in Philadelphia. On September the 17th, 1787, after three months of debate, moderated by Convention President George Washington, the new U.S. Constitution, which created a strong federal government with an intricate system of checks and balances, was signed by 38 of the 41 delegates present at the conclusion of the convention. As dictated by the Article 7, the document would, ne- would not become binding until it was ratified by at least nine of the 13 states. <clears throat> Beginning on December the 7th, five states, Delaware, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, uh, Georgia, and Connecticut, ratified it in quick succession. However, other states, especially Massachusetts, opposed the document as it failed to reserve undelegated powers to the states and lacked constitutional protection of political rights, such as freedom of speech, religion, and press. Well, they worked through all that, and it was ratified... Uh, on September the 25th, the first Congress of the United States adopted the 12 Amendments of the United States Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and sent them to the state for ratification. Ten of these amendments were ratified in 1791, and of course, the rest is history. Uh, the Constitution became uh, the law of the land and uh, ratified uh, by the first state on this date in 1789. Well, President Donald Trump has issued a statement wishing everyone a happy Father's Day, including radical left rhinos and other losers in the world. (laughs) The hilarious statement came in a uh, typical Trump fashion and concluded with, hopefully, eventually everyone will come together. Wouldn't that be great? Also, inspiring story. Congratulations to John Rahm, who won the U.S. Golf Open at Torrey Pines in San Diego yesterday. His victory is the particularly significant to me and to others because he was disqualified after winning the tournament at Muirfield Village uh, by an unbelievable six strokes. He went up after the tournament. He was told that uh, he was disqualified because he tested positive for COVID-19, and he had no symptoms. What divine redemption for John Rahm. It's just terrific. On Father's Day, his little child with him, it's always darkest before the dawn. He stuck it out and ended up winning uh, the uh, U.S. Open. Good news. Well, I'm going to go right to my first guest right now. This segment of the show is brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you visit the website, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Mark Schulman. He is the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. That and more. Right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. 
Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. Coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture. Right now we have with us Mark Schulman. Mark is an uh, author. He's written several books, mainly on past presidents. He's also the founder and publisher of a terrific multimedia website. You need to check it out, HistoryCentral.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you, Mark. So, as usual, we're going to be talking about current world events, and I thought a good place to start would be with the uh, summit between Putin and uh, Biden. What, what were your thoughts? Well, it seems to have gone relatively well. There's always a problem when you meet with Putin because, you know, he he lies about everything. But if you assume that as a starting point, um, it was a, a reasonably good summit in the sense that um, they, you know, stated their opinions, and Biden drew some clear red lines. Um, and he came to the summit, of course, after meeting with all the European allies and had the full backing of all of NATO and all the European allies. So he was not speaking just for himself. He was speaking for the Western world, basically, with Putin. So all those were, were, were advantages. Yeah. What, are, what will come of it? That's a hard question to answer. You know, the whole question of cyber and where that's going to stop and how that's going to stop. Um, that's going to be a difficult situation. Uh, how much of it is state-sponsored and how much of it is criminal that the Russians just don't want to stop? Another is there another a difference? Real problem. Uh, but um, Mark, is there a difference look, between state-sponsored and criminal? There is a difference. It clearly is because it depends on what the targets are. Obviously, mm-hmm. criminals want to target things that have the best uh, financial value. Uh, state wants to target things that have the most strategic value. Okay. So, what did you so, what did you make of uh, the sixteen sectors that uh, would? were off-limits for cyber uh, attacks. I just That made some, no sense to me. No, I think it made perfect sense. It made it very clear that if any of those areas... Look, here's part of the problem. All countries are involved in cyber espionage all the time. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So we've been involved... You know, We have the NSA, who's a, the most well-funded aspect of the U.S. government, practically. They've been involved in cyber espionage and probably a little bit more for 20, 30 years or more. So the question becomes, what, you know, where do you draw red lines in terms of, uh, in the world of cyber? And you draw red lines in areas that are um, critical to the day-to-day operations of a country and a nation. And you make it very clear that if 
uh, you know, he did actually exactly what I suggested. Uh, I was on air on TV this the couple of days, the day beforehand, and I said, if I'm him, I'm going to say, if you um, if you continue to attack X, Y, and Z, uh, then we're going to disable your whole oil industry or the equivalent. Mm-hmm. And I think that's pretty much what he did. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, I understand we're not going to stop everything. And we probably engage in some things, but these are the things. If you do any of these things, we're going to rema- we're going to mount a major counterattack that'll freeze your economy. Yeah, so, I guess I guess uh, uh, what I wanted was to say, you know, any anything on American soil or any Americans that are attacked or any companies uh, is they're off limits. Yeah, that's a hard thing to do because it's also, you know, it it, it becomes so easy for you to start. You know, again, because any criminal could be doing it. It becomes very, very difficult if you if you make it any. I'm mean, not that I'm against any. Yeah. But it's a very, very hard thing because then if you don't respond, then your threats become useless. Well, I must say, Mark, so that's you always a... have to when you when you're when you're threatening uh, of use of force. In this case, we're talking about use of cyber force, but it, it's the same of any any type of force. When you say that you're going to retaliate if you do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Unless you actually do retaliate, then you, your deterrence becomes not worth anything. Yeah. Well, so thanks you, need, for you that. need to make it very clear where you're going to deter, you know, what areas. All right. Well, that's that's very helpful and clarifying. That's about the most helpful comment I've heard about that. So, but, uh, so thank you for that. Uh, so uh, in, in your mind, then, it was a successful summit in the sense that uh, they, they communicated. You knew that uh, uh, Putin would be lying, but uh, nevertheless, they were able to uh, extend... Uh, you know the uh, the power of able to set, set certain parameters, able to create certain mechanisms. I mean, one of the things that both countries want is a return to negotiations on on nuclear weapons to continue, you know, to continue those negotiations and limitations on nuclear weapons, which is something that we all want. And so those those parameters were set. Uh-huh. Parameters in terms of cyber were to some extent set. Well, will be kept. We'll have to see. Um, so I think it, in that sense it was successful. I mean, both, um, you know, Putin got a, I mean, who knew, he knew who Biden was, but he got a, a new sense of who Biden was. And the same with terms of, um, again, knowing Putin. Yeah. Um, look, uh, he didn't want to see Biden as president, but now he's going to have to deal with it. And so um, it was a good summit, as, as summits go, without too great expectations. So let's, let's this move. Wasn't, this wasn't Reagan Gorbachev. Let's uh, move to Afghanistan. So there we have a problematic situation. There are two things I wanted to talk about. Number one, um, this bipartisan effort to, to get as many of the people who have helped the United States over the last couple of years or many years out of the country before it's too late. Right. And the attempt to move those people as quickly as possible, uh, the ability to do so exists in the law. The United States has laws that will allow emergency uh, waivers to bring uh, people who have helped the U.S. government and the Army, etc., in as refugees. Uh, the problem is we have a process. The process should be in place because we want to make sure we're not bringing any Taliban in, and etc., etc. But on the other hand, we need to do it as quickly as possible. And I think there's a bipartisan effort right now um, in the Congress to push the administration to do this as quickly as possible. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, as we've discussed before, I've had this very mixed feelings about pulling out of Afghanistan, um, and I still have very mixed feelings. Uh, on one hand, I think it's a mistake. On the other hand, what are the what are the alternatives? Right, so, exactly. Well, to, to, to your point, though, these people are dead men walking because uh, they, you know because they supported the United States. The Taliban certainly wants them dead, and uh, they worked right. hard to support. They took great risks to support us. We should support them. Absolutely, we need to bring every single one of these people into the United States as emergency refugees and take care of them when they arrive. And right. they, these people help the United States. We need to help them. No right. questions about it. Right. So hopefully, hopefully it will happen quick enough. Uh, there are only a few months to do all this, and you know, bureaucracies are bureaucracies, as we know. Yep. And then what's number two? You said there's a couple things that. Uh, you... Number two. So number two is again they hold the whole situation. You know, you listen to the the Taliban talk about now we want to negotiate a settlement, etc. It's unlikely. Let's put it that way. Yeah. It's very unlikely. Uh, my best guess is that the Taliban will defeat the government forces, but they could surprise us. I don't know. You know, people do not want to be subjugated by the Taliban. The women do not want to go back to being 
fifth-class citizens. Um, it's a, such a hard problem. It really is. Yeah. You know, it becomes so hard when you try to, when you're in a country where you have a religion that became a fund, that a fundamentalist aspect of a religion that that turns into a political movement that um, combines with nationalism. And that's what the Taliban are, some combination of fundamentalist religion and Afghani nationalism against invaders. And, um, you know, very problematic. Most yeah. fundamentalist religions are problematic regardless of of which religion they are, and they all tend to have a problem with women, which is kind of interesting across religions. So. It is, So, which is kind of a great segue into Iran right now. They just had their election and uh, free and open election. Free and open election, <laughs> except you can only vote for the people who we approve of, and they all happen to be supporters more or less of the regime. Yeah. And, oh, by the way, <clears throat> the, the candidate of the Supreme Leader has won, and he is the guy who was responsible for murdering thousands of demonstrators, etc. Yeah. Yes, this is the guy who's the new president of Iran, um, the most fundamentalist of the presidents of Iran it's had. Over the period of the last 40 years, you've had a fundamentalist supreme leader, and you always had a front man who was just a little bit more liberal, let's put it that way, Mm -hmm. a little bit more of the people, a little bit more, um, you know, you may not have liked them, but uh, whether it's uh, Akhmedinejad or all these sort of people, but they weren't the same level of fundamentalists as the as the supreme leader is. And now we have a fundamentalist who is now also the president of the country. Yeah, um, doesn't bode well. Let's put it that way. Absolutely, forty uh, percent of the turn there was a turnout. You know, forty percent the election. Most people stayed home, um, and you know we go back to the same problem we have: the Iranian people. There's almost no way for them to overturn this this regime. You know, what's and interesting about this is they're, as I understand it, f- uh, fairly westernized. So it surprises me that they actually have a tolerance for... Uh, they don't have a tolerance. They just don't have an option. Yeah. Once again, we saw in the Green Revolution in, I guess it was 2009, you know, the government just fired on the people. And we saw what happened in Syria. The, you know, the majority of the people wanted Assad gone. He's still there because he was willing to kill half a million of his own people and throw out four or five million. Yeah. As long as a government controls the guns, and the people firing those guns are loyal to the government, in this case, they've managed to make sure that the people with the control of the guns are fundamentalists themselves, then it's almost impossible to, to overturn a government like that. Yeah. You know, it's not... Um, there's no easy solutions. That's that's the problem. You know, when when we saw the the regimes in Eastern Europe fall one after the other, it's because the army turned on the government. Yeah. Because the army was made up of conscripts, basically, and the conscripts weren't willing to fire on the people. Well, and again, all the way back to the Russian Revolution of 1917. Why why did the the Marxist Leninists win initially? Because the army wasn't willing to kill its own people. Yeah. As. Uh the great Thomas Sowell said, I probably said this before, but uh, there are no solutions. There are only trade-offs. So, uh, right. And, uh, right. I mean, it's <clears> once in a while you have a nice solution, but generally speaking, it's very, very difficult. Um, and, you know, it's a difficult world out there. There's it no is way indeed. around it. So uh, let, let's talk about these pending uh, Iran nuclear uh, deal renewals. Uh, where do we stand with that? We seem to be in a neutral point at this point. I mean, first of all, the, the Iranians were certainly waiting until after the election. Now, one set of views is they wanted a, you know, the new government to get the um, get the credit for the deal. It's not at all clear where, where that stands at the moment. Um, there, the United States is pushing for certain changes in terms of lengthening it, getting rid of the sunset clauses, etc. Um, on the other hand, there seems to be active um, sabotage going on on a regular basis. Yesterday, their main nuclear plant went offline because of some sort of problem. Wow. Undescribed problem. Hmm. Um, so you had a uh, you had a meltdown in Natanz, you've had an uh, oil you've had multiple um, multiple sabotage it would seem taking place on a pretty regular basis. And that seems to be slowing down their program, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Can it stop it? Unclear. Mm-hmm. Um, probably not, but so far it's done a pretty good job of delaying it quite a bit. Um, so I don't know. So um, what's going to be the uh, Israeli standpoint? They're not going to allow um, 
Iran to, to reach the point of nuclear weapons. There's an argument of whether, you know, coming to an agreement that puts it off for five or ten years may be better than that. And that's one of the big questions. Yeah. Do you, do you, you know, is it better to put it off or, or um, you know, deal with it now? But no one's really willing to deal with it now because, you know, the United States ready to go to war with Iran? I don't think so. Yeah. So are the United States... So, so, so there, lies the, there, there lies the problem. You know, President Trump's policy was a fine policy as far as it goes if he was willing to go to war. But uh-huh. he wasn't. And that's just something he should have been. But I'm just saying that, you know, maximum pressure did not result in a revolution in Iran. Mm-hmm. Yet. So th- therein lies the problem. It's right. very difficult to overthrow a regime. So are the, is the, are the United States and uh, Israel at cross purposes with regard to Iran? No, they're sort of in, mixed, in a mixed place right now. <clears throat> Obviously, there's a new government in Israel, and they're trying to start with a, good, with a positive uh, foot. The president of Israel, who is um, retiring at the end of uh, the beginning of July, is coming for a state visit next week um, with President Biden, and the expectation is that Biden will invite the prime, new prime minister to come sometime in July. Um, there's concern. Let's put it this way: they're not on the they're not on the same page totally, mm-hmm. but the goal is the same. The question is, how do you reach that goal? Yeah. How do you reach the goal of um, denying them nuclear weapons? And is it, you know? Part of the problem is, can you have everything, right? You know, some people say, uh, we can't have an agreement with them unless it includes ballistic missiles. Well, that would be nice to have an agreement that includes ballistic missiles, but what if you can't get an agreement that includes ballistic missiles? Does that still say you go ahead and let them have nuclear, you know, make a bomb? Yeah. Or is it better to have an agreement that's not, you know, is not perfect? You know, as the old saying goes, uh, the perfect is the enemy of the good. Yeah. So good point. Always a difficulty here. Good, good point. Uh, let's move to uh, what's happening with regard to COVID. Uh, of course, it's reducing its importance in terms of the news of the world, taking the headlines. But what are your thoughts? Well, look, we have this problem now with this Indian variant that's hitting different parts of of the world. I mean, Britain looked like it was coming, you know, was coming out of it completely, and then it turned out that um, the British cases have increased fourfold. Now, part of the reason that is is it turns out that the AstraZeneca, um, AstraZeneca vaccine is only effective against the Indian variant after you give two, get two shots of it. And while the regular one was effective after the first, and so the Great Britain made a decision that looked like the right decision at the time to give out as many as they could to get as many people get the first, first vaccine and then um, worry about the second later. But then suddenly this new variant has shown up, and this new variant um, doesn't seem to care about, the, is, can overcome the first, the first shot. Yeah. It requires two full vaccinations in order to be effective against it. So Britain is in difficulty relating to that. The United States hopefully will be a lot less so um, because the U.S. has used almost, almost completely the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, and most people have gotten the second uh, the second vaccine, and second of all, it looks like the Pfizer works against the Indian variant even after the first uh, first dose. Hmm. You know, the concern is, of course, pockets um, of unvaccinated people, anyone who's not vaccinated is at risk, and of course kids, and actually what's happened here in Israel the last three days is suddenly a large number of kids have come down with COVID. Um, there was a couple of people <coughs> came in from overseas, and it seems like they brought the Indian variant, hmm. and while it's not spreading amongst the population at large, because Eighty-five percent of the adults in the country are now vaccinated. Um, it is spreading amongst the kids. Hmm. And some of them are getting sick. So, uh, what's so happening? They decided in yesterday to, um, while uh, vaccinating twelve and uh, twelve to sixteen-year-olds was sort of optional, they're now recommending everyone get the, every kid twelve to sixteen gets vaccinated. So, the number of cases going down in India, they've leveled off. Let's hmm. put it that way. Yeah. They've leveled off at about fifty to 60,000 a day. That's because they've locked down everything again. Mm-hmm. Remember, they, you know, when they were going crazy, it was, there was no lockdowns, there was nothing. The country was fully, up, you know, was fully engaged in day-to-day business and everything else, and festivals and everything else. They locked everything down, and they brought the numbers down from maybe 150,000 a day to, to 50,000, um, but that's still a very large number. Um, and, you know, the other place that's really concerning is, of course, Brazil, uh, where Brazil is pushing almost, uh, 
is pushing, I believe, close to 500,000 deaths. Yep. Just remember that we in the United, in the United States have 600,000, and, you know, I think we're three times the size of the population of Brazil. Yeah. So, yeah. So um, it just makes me wonder why we're not using hydroxychloroquine and some of these other uh, therapeutics uh, as uh, for people to get the, get the disease to let them, you know, uh, heal. I it think doesn't I, seem, none of these things work well. There, there are some new things being developed at this point, <clears throat> um, and the U.S. government has just um, has just committed three billion dollars to a um, some sort of a a pill uh, that people will be able to take once they if they get the disease that will fight the disease. But the problem, it seems to be, from what I understand, is any of these therapeutics have to work very at the very beginning. Yeah. And we tend to give it to people who, when they're in the hospital and already, yeah, it's too late, far along, too late. So, uh, uh, right. before I let you go, uh, Mark, I want to talk to you about this Chinese defector. And there seems to be just a number of strains of uh, information. Everything from the fact that it's apocryphal and not true to the fact that it's just bringing in unbelievable amounts of uh, information about the uh, Chinese uh, Communist Party. Maybe you could tell us about it. Okay, so I mean, there've been rumors going around for at least the last week that the uh, number one counterintelligence uh, agent of Hong of the Chinese government defected to the United States with his daughter. Uh, flew from Hong Kong to the United States, and of course he has tremendous knowledge of of all sorts of things. The way these things normally work, wait, excuse me, they normally work. It usually takes a long time until anyone acknowledges that this this took place. If you're the U.S. intelligence services, you want to keep them in the Chinese. May or may not know he's missing. I mean, know he's missing, obviously, if he's not at his job, and that they'll know. But they may or may not know what happened to him, and they want you want to keep them guessing for as long as possible, obviously. Uh-huh. Hmm. Uh, if it's really true, I mean, it's a tremendous break in terms of um, in terms of break in terms of Chinese, because the United States has had very little luck. They, they've lost. We've lost most of our agents in China over the last um, 10, 15 years. Clearly, some sort of leak that took place, cyber leak, most likely, that they got the names of most of our agents in China. So, uh, to have someone like this defect the United States is a tremendous coup if it took place. Um, and you know, what can I say? Hats off to the CIA, whoever it was that may have worked this case, because it's a tremendous coup. We'll have to see whether it's really true or not. Yeah, it's so, just one little piece of information. Is apparently, the, he he claims that a third of the students. At United States universities are are communist spies, Chinese spies. But number two, they have uh, pseudonyms. <laughs> They're not even going by their real names. Kind of interesting, right? I mean, we don't have, you know. There are all sorts of rumors, and I have no doubt in my mind that some percentage of them are spies. And I wouldn't even call the word spies aren't right. In other words, I would say a, a significant percentage of them are getting some sort of stipend from the Chinese government, yeah. and are asked to supply. X information. Yeah. Uh, and some of it may be spying, so you know, to take a physics course in uh, Stanford as a student, you're learning things that, you know, you don't normally know. Yeah. So, you know, you're reporting that back. Is that a spy or is that, you know, intellectual property stealing or is it, what is it exactly? It's not good. It's not but, good. Okay. Mark Schulman, again, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. As usual, a very informative and interesting conversation about global affairs. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Have a great week, Bob. You as well, thank you. And again, HistoryCentral.com is the website. I hope you'll check it out. It's really uh, multimedia, quite good, Kid, good for kids of all ages. Coming up, uh, we're going to visit with Larry Reed. He is the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate courtyard garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean dining room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere 
that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgoing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social, a new refreshing social networking platform. You can find out more by visiting choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Bell, and Dodd professor at the University of Houston in space architecture. Right now we have with us Larry Reed. He is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Bob. Thank you, Larry. Thank you. Tell us about the uh, Foundation for Economic Education. Okay. We are a private, nonprofit educational organization, and our focus is on high school and college students. We work to educate and inspire them in ideas of private property, free enterprise, entrepreneurship, and small government, and personal character. And we do that through our website, which is fee.org through the uh, commentary that are posted there daily, as well as videos and in-person events all over the country and sometimes overseas as well. Yeah, a great organization. I've seen it in action in these oh, couple of national conventions that I just encourage you to visit. Fee.org. If you have a young person in your life who's uh, college or high school age, introduce them to the Foundation for Economic Education. Great organization. Larry, uh, you've written another great column, The Dark Side of Paradise, A Brief History of Americans' Utopian Experiments in Communal Living. Uh, so interesting. Maybe you can tell us about it. Okay. Uh, in the first half of the 19th century, there were many experiments by uh, rather wild-eyed idealists with uh, communitarianism, for want of a better term, mm. they tended to be utopian socialist communities. Uh, these were places around the country where uh, they would gather sympathetic people, uh, they would try uh, in their society to share everything. Uh, many of them had a policy of everybody would get the same pay, regardless of uh, their contribution to the work process. Uh, they would uh, live communally, uh, share everything, and the, the objective was uh, a, a better society in, in their terms, mm -hmm. uh, but they wanted to achieve it because they were unhappy in various ways with uh, life as they saw it. They, they thought that uh, too many people were too focused on uh, the individual, they should be more interested in the group, the collective, that kind of thing, but of course all that ends up being sort of defined by the people with power at the top. Uh, but there were 119 of these experimental communities that were started between 1800 and 1860, and not a one of them survived. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, you're reminding me that uh, the, uh, the, the uh, people, that, the founders of the of Pilgrims, uh, started as a, a commune. In other words, they were mandated by their charter to uh, start off by sharing everything and working, uh, everybody pitching in and working for the same common goal, and they it nearly killed them all. <laughs> yeah, it did, and it lasted about two years. <laughs> and Governor Bradford of the Plymouth Colony wrote about uh, in his diary uh, that uh, 
when they had that kind of communist or socialist system that a lot of people decided, uh, hey, why work if I get an equal share of whatever everybody else produces? So <laughs> there were a lot of slackers. Uh, and the moment he decided to uh, privatize things and just tell people, look, you've got a private plot. Now you grow what you want, get the best price you can for it, but you're not going to be paid just, just for breathing. And uh, lo and behold, they started to be productive. Yeah, which led to the first Thanksgiving, as I recall. So uh, just uh, so interesting. And, and again, uh, there's been time and time again where these uh, communes or utopian experiments have been attempted uh, to no avail. In fact, it makes me think that sometimes uh, we're seeing this with the Democrat Party. <laughs> yeah. You know, the one big difference, though, Bob, uh, even though they share similar motivations, wanting to collectivize everything and de-emphasize the individual and de-emphasize private property and so forth, uh, the one thing about these communes of the 19th century, they did it voluntarily. Mm -hmm. uh, they had to learn uh, when people just walked away and said, uh, you know, we've, we've had enough of this, it doesn't work. But uh, the Democrats and, uh, or socialists of today, uh, they're not content with just uh, convincing you of your own free will to do this kind of stuff. They want to impose it by law. They, they want to uh, make sure people don't earn more than they think they should earn. They want to uh, de-emphasize private property and run everything through the government, and they want to do it through force. So at least give, the, give some credit to the 19th century communitarians that uh, they couldn't force anybody to participate and that's a big reason why uh, people left rather early, and they all failed within a few years. Yeah, uh, great point, and great point indeed. I mean, right now, a few years ago, they, uh, uh, the Democrats at the left wanted us to uh, consider our history evil. Now we want to consider each other evil based on the color of our skin. So it's just a terrible turn of affairs right now, and uh, we're, we're in a terrible state. Yeah. Oh. So anyhow, this is a great column, uh, Larry. I really appreciate it's again, it's called uh, The uh, Dark Side of Paradise, A Brief History of Americans' Utopian Experiments in Communal Living. I just refer you to fee.org, F-E-E.org, to find out more and uh, read the column. Larry, I always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Bob. Thank you. All right, my pleasure indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Bell. He's an endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture. He's also the e author of several uh, books. His latest is What Makes Humans Tr Truly Exceptional. Uh, that's his latest book. It is really a great read. His book about climate change is the one that I enjoy so much. Also, it's called Scared Witless, The Prophets and Prophets of Climate Doom. So we're going to visit with Larry Bell, that and more, right here in the Bob Harden Show on the uh, Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. Do you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too.
You listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-389 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And you can find out more by visiting gulfshoreplayhouse.org. We have with us Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture. He's author of several books, as I mentioned before the break, uh, What Makes Humans Truly Exceptional is his latest, uh, but uh, many others as well. Uh, I encourage you to visit uh, Newsmax.com, you'll see uh, his column on point, and you'll see a reference to all the uh, writings that he's written. One of his columns is, uh, No White Supremacists and Global Warmings Are Not Our Greatest Threats. Professor Bill, thank you so much for joining us. Bob, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Professor. So, <clears throat> so uh, tell us about, no, white supremacists and global warming, they're not our greatest threats. So tell us about that. Well, we're hearing that they are, I think. You know, we're hearing that, uh, you know, that the planet is doomed because of your SUV. And, uh, and of course, we have the, uh, I think the people who watch, the, those of us who watch the riots burning down cities last summer, uh, um, I didn't see a lot of people driving F-1, you know, 50 uh, Ford jacked-up pickups uh crashing into those into those riot groups and uh and I, I think these these issues white supremacy thing uh, is is something that um I don't think most Americans see as as as, as a central threat to our right. to our lives and security. And global warming is something of course I've written about and you and I have talked about a great deal. Uh don't really see uh Rising sea levels threatening the polar bears anytime soon. It's so frustrating, Professor, because uh, right now this narrative is all so woke and it's so uh, manufactured as opposed to being re- related to what's reality, and that's just very frustrating. I mean, the, you know, the the fact that the uh, if we if we don't act now, we're gonna there'll be no hope for the globe. It's so ridiculous. Now, something bad could happen to the globe. You know, a meteorite, anything could happen. But my goodness, I mean, it's it's not something that we can control. Well, I think it's 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 a distraction, but it's a very dangerous one because you know we we're we're doing these absolutely you know we push into these absolutely silly kinds of positions now where where I think most of us realize that. The, the, the big problems we have are we have globally we have you know we have China which is which is which is a huge huge issue and and all of these things tie together because we're, we're being pushed into this in this green new deal and green energy where where all those so-called green energies depend on rare earth materials from China they control eighty percent of these rare earth materials and not only are we uh, pushing uh, strategies that are supposed to be Anti, you know, the hydrocarbon, anti-fuel, fossil fuel. But we're going to take the uh, the couple percent of uh, electric vehicles and make them the the, the thing. We're going to put all that electricity on a, on a on a ancient grid we have. That and, and people don't understand that you know the grid has to be balanced second by second, and wind and solar are intermittent. And by and and the, and the sources of balancing the grid, of course, are are Fossil fuels, principally natural gas and coal. So we're not going to have reliable electricity, and 
Meanwhile, we're going to put more and more things on the grid, and we're going to then depend more and more on China for rare earth materials. And then we, when we look at, you know, the, the the discussion of Russia being a great threat, well, you know, we canceled, you know, because of the premise on climate, we canceled the Keystone Pipeline. I don't say we, but by the administration, and they got to stay now in the court, stay on on the ban on on, on fracking and drilling on federal on federal lands and waters, but uh, there were less simultaneous to that. We've talked about this. They, uh, they relieved the, the Trump sanctions on the on Nord uh, Stream 2 pipeline, where, mm-hmm. where Russia now sells its, its gas under the Baltic to Europe. And, uh, you know, that, that's, a, that's, that's not, not real smart. We have, a, of course, the southern border problem, and... and all the talk about COVID and masks and security. We have, we have people coming unvetted across the border. We, we call them together in these in these these camps and and then release them, distribute them nationwide uh, with all the emphasis on COVID. We do this in the middle of a pandemic. You know that's that's not really smart. And we we crush the economy with endless endless spending that is driving inflation. You know. Uh, crazy. Uh, that's that's you know a major a major issue. So we've got and then we're and then we've got the uh, you know Iran again, and they're now pushing the you know, the Biden administration to just do absolutely anything to you know to uh, you know to save the planet. So we we engage uh, with reconstructing this Iran deal, and and uh, you know they've been. Funding these proxy wars and and in Hamas and and, and the attacks on Israel, hmm. uh, you know. So we've got we've got some real, real serious problems and issues, and they're dangerous. And to talk about white supremacy or talk about climate change is absolutely lunatic. It really is, Professor. And it's so disappointing that the, the again, it's not only just the uh, Biden administration, but it's the mainstream media and so many participating and helping out and and keeping this narrative alive that's so destructive. And as you're pointing out, I mean, we've got real problems. <laughs> we've got real problems, and they're getting worse. Quite frankly, uh, the way things are going. Well, I think that you know, we have an election coming up midterm, <clears throat> and uh, I feel quite strongly that. Uh, we're going to see quite a quite a sea change there, and it won't be the climate, because you know the midterms are really kitchen table issues. They're state local issues, and where you know where the border issue is a kitchen table issue in, in these states, in not just the border states, but the, but you know the border problem uh, is distributed throughout the whole countryside. So so that's that's going to be a major thing. And when we start, it'll take a while for the real energy pain to happen. I think you know, expect blackouts and brownouts in California, but California's always been nuts. And and but when we start really clapping down on, on energy, of course we're gonna keep using fossil energy. You're just gonna pay more for it to pump. And that's and that's that's something that you know, when people fill up the gas tanks, that's an immediate issue. It, it affects commodity prices and and inflation affects it's a it's a family kitchen table issue. Yeah. Um, so a lot of these, uh, and 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 the crime issues, you know, and and we're we're seeing you know huge uh, numbers of retirement of police now because they don't want to put up with this not being supported by communities and 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 people and the and the problems we associate with metropolitan areas are going to become suburban areas, you know. The bad people aren't going to just stay in in right. in knock offices, television sets. They're going to go into the suburbs where the real money is. And so I think as these as these issues now become moving from you know from metropolitan areas and from and from the coastal states, they're going to be more midwestern issues as well. And and I think we're going to see a change and. And hopefully, staunch the bleeding that we've been seeing since, you know, since you know the Biden administration has been really going absolutely berserko. And uh, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm really quite uh, hopeful that we can staunch the bleeding and 
people are realizing how bad things have become, you know, how much, how much the termites have eaten away of the structure of our country and our culture and our economy and our security, yeah. that we're going to see some improvements. I hope so. I, I agree with you. I'm hopeful as well. I mean, I, I watch and see this uh, guy, I guess his name is Schmidt. He's a, uh, a law enforcement guy out in, in Oregon. He's the uh, district attorney, I guess. And, uh, you know, basically want to enforce the law. And uh, he's letting people out of jail, no bail, all these types of things that are going on. Now they, he's indicted, a, uh, I guess, a rapid uh, response officer. And then the, the entire res- rapid response team has quit. I mean, you can imagine the chaos that's, that's going to create with all the things that are going on in Portland, Oregon. And I, I honestly believe that if the entire area burned down, he'd probably say, we had it coming. Well, I think it's I think it's true, and you know you, your heart has to go out to to the police. You know they, yeah, they they imagine imagine their life. You know, and, and apart from the fact that you never know if you're coming home to your your family in the evening, whether you're a, a woman or a, a, a man, a policeman, whether you know that kind of you know that kind of sense. But imagine imagine feeling like. Uh, your your so much of your life is is seeing gruesome things happen on the highway, you know, and and, and the family disputes and, and all of the things, you know, and dealing with, with you know, this heart wrenching things with, you know, the the addictive problems and opa you know, opioid issues and you're the first ones people come and 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 you're constantly living in in an environment and circumstances that most of us aren't aware of. We don't we don't live in that, and then to be disrespected, mm-hmm. and and uh, and 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 those chaotic problems you're mentioning are going to really hit the communities that that need policing the most. And I think a lot of polls bear this out that a lot, a lot of minority uh, communities really want policing. You know, they, they want they they uh, they they want to feel safe. They want their children to be safe, Absolutely. and so. Sometimes things have to get really, really bad before before changes occur, and that's tragic. But uh, I, you know, it's the old pendulum thing. Hopefully, the pendulum's going to swing back. Uh, well said, Professor. It's always darkest before the dawn. And to your point, just to uh, close the loop here, circle back to your point is that I mean we're focusing on white supremacy and global warming. Those aren't our greatest threats. We have real threats, and uh, we need to deal with them. Professor, I always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Bob, I always enjoy it as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. And again, his latest book, uh, Why Tr- Humans Are Truly Exceptional, I highly recommend that, as well as Scared Witless, The Prophets and Prophets of Climate Doom. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, on tomorrow, we're going to be visiting with Kathleen Pasadomo, our state senator. We'll visit with Boo Mortensen. We'll find out what's new with Boo. And Seton Motley is the founder and president of Less Government. We'll also be visiting with uh, my wife, Linda. She'll be doing a segment with me as well. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com. <laughs>